Hello, everybody, and welcome to Fortress Comic News, episode 308.1. That's right, we got a point one for you this week. Uh, as I announced that in 308, we actually have two extra interviews this week. So you're going to get a point two this week as well. But what's worry about the point one right now? I got the chance, the opportunity to talk to Benjamin Morse of We Are Scarlet Twilight. Uh, we had Benjamin on the show for issue one. He's now trying to crowdfund issue four and the trade paperback, the hardcover trade paperback, as well as trying to get the word out that We Are Scarlet Twilight is being published by Red 5 and is in your previews catalog right now. So I, we talk about it in the interview. It's a, a nice long interview. I praise the book up and down. I mean every word of it. It's a phenomenal series four issue series with great art a cool story it hits tropes and themes that i love uh mixes up batman the animated series with captain america and throws in some vampires just to make it even more fun i really recommend this series wholeheartedly and uh i can tell you firsthand since i've read issue four that the ending is phenomenal too so hopefully i'll go check that out and hopefully you enjoy this interview with Ben, uh, before I take off, remember everybody, like, subscribe, share, comment down below if you are watching the YouTube version of the interview. And uh, if you're, for most of you that are listening to the podcast version, I ask reviews, reviews, reviews on whatever podcast you use. It helps out a ton, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever you're using. They mean the world to us. And they help get us into more ears. So do that for me. It requires a few minutes of your time. And I just am gr so grateful for all of you who do it. So please uh, take the time to do that. And if you want to go the extra mile, you all know Patreon at patreon.com slash Fortress Comics. And also the affiliate links in the show notes down below. So I've taken up enough of your time by myself. Let's jump over to that interview with Benjamin Morse. All right, everybody, I've got another very special guest for you all. I'm welcoming back to the show, Mr. Benjamin Morris. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to have you back. Uh, the, the book we we're talking about is We Are Scarlet Twilight. Uh, had you on a while back for issue one. You're now all the way to issue four, completing the the series or the first arc. Mm -hmm. We'll get into whether which one it is later, but and doing the trade paperback. So I'm really excited the book's kind of coming to conclusion and that it seems to be successful for you. So first, congrats on everything with the book. Uh, Thanks. Thank you. Uh, I was lucky enough to, to get a chance to read the entire thing. So we will, we will not be spoiling anything here today, <laughs> but we will be talking in depth about the book. So let's start with, uh, let's do a quick, like if in case for the newcomers or somebody who didn't listen to that interview, what is We Are Scarlet Twilight? We Are Scarlet Twilight is a, a comic adventure that's a throwback to the sort of stories you saw in the golden age of comics or the pulps. The heroes like the Shadow and Flash Gordon, their type of uh, you know stories. Um, it concerns a, cap a crime fighter named Captain Lancet, who's sort of a classic 1930s two-fisted crime buster. But he has a dark secret that we learn about in issue one uh, through... You know, through the story in issue one, he ends up uh, losing a battle to his greatest uh, arch adversary and waking up a little over 100 years in the future to a world where she's taken over. So the rest of the story after that concerns uh, figuring out a little bit more about Captain Lance and his secrets and also figuring out how he's going to take down the villains that have uh, sort of overthrown humanity uh, through the rest of the story. Yeah, and I've been pitching it around to people I know is it's, it reminds me a lot of in terms of the, not necessarily the art, but the aesthetic of Batman, the animated series mm -hmm. mixed with kind of a captain America feel to it. It was kind of like the quick elevator pitch I've been given. Do you think that's good or? Oh yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. In <laughs> fact, there's, there's, um, I don't know if the, the, uh, covered issue too was like really direct homage to Batman, the animated series. Um, the way they would do it actually is almost could have been pulled from the opening titles of that where they're the red sky, uh, blurry back black buildings and uh, blue lights on the buildings. It's one of my favorite frames of any animation. 
And so that was really just taken from there whenever I could. Um, but yeah, the Batman animated series was a, was a gigantic influence on, on the look of it, as was the Fleischer brothers cartoons from the forties, the Superman ones that were, you know, of course, a big influence on Batman as well. Yeah. So I, I think my audience can tell why I like this book so much. Cause we already had two of my favorite things in comics. And then one of the big twist of it also hits one of my favorite things. It's just the media in general, which I, I won't spoil, but we can spoil uh, that. One. was really I cool. I like to say when I'm, sure. I like to say when I'm spoiling some things, like it's it seems like a big spoiler, but those aren't the good ones. <laughs> so there's many more where that came from. So yeah, we could spoil that. Okay, so yeah, so everybody out there, the big spoilers are Captain Lancet's a vampire, and so everybody knows how much I love vampires and the Dracula <laughs> mythos and all that. So you, you hit my th- three of my top five probably in terms of uh, awesome. media and everything. So. Yeah, I, I guess where to start. So the book, the first three issues you were doing on Kickstarter, all funded, did pretty mm-hmm. well for you. And then for this one, now you're doing issue four, but you're doing kind of a double crowdfunding with the issue four and mm-hmm. the, the trade. So I guess start with uh, what was the decision that went into like doing both of them together as opposed to two separate campaigns for these? Uh, the, the main thing, and this is really informs also the decision to go over to Zoop, um, is shipping really was crazy. Um, the way shipping costs, I mean, they were pretty expensive when I started, we are Scarlet Twilight, but they just continue to rise and rise. And what's worse is not just the cost, of course, that is bad, but you almost have to sit when you're, when you're crowdfunding a book, you generally are doing it, you know, in advance of, of most of the work. So you also don't know how much things are going to change at, during the time you're doing the book. You're going to charge a certain amount for shipping unless you're on like backer kit or something like that. And then you're surprising your backers, which I don't want to do. Um, but given the, the the time frame it takes to produce an issue, especially when I'm doing it all myself, it, there's just way too much volatility in there. So I had a lot of delays with three and I, I was really unhappy about. And I look at all the support I've gotten on this series and I thought I've got to do something about that or at least see if I can. And I had been talking to Zoop for a while. I was going to do a different book there down the line and thought, you know, it actually makes sense to maybe transition over to Zoop right now for number four and the hardcover. Um, That way we have things where people can catch up with all the issues if they want, get them in one shipment, get the hardcover as well, get that in one shipment um, and really make things a lot easier. So at least if nothing else, people aren't paying for shipping, you know, two, three, four times Uh, because that you know, in the normal world, that wouldn't be that bad, but it, it really has gotten that way. In addition to that, the uh, I can't say enough good things about the way that the team at Zoop just handles these campaigns. Um, they've set up a, done a great job of setting up things to get the word out. They've done a great job at just planning out the campaign, the tiers, just really helping me out so I could focus on the book. And the difference just in production has been huge because I'm, as you know, done with issue four. On the other campaigns, I would maybe be between five and 10 pages into it uh, while I was running a campaign. And I was able to just finish this up because I wasn't spending the month before the campaign, you know, checking shipping rates every day, seeing what was, what was maybe, is there a rumor that they're going to raise shipping rates again down the line? Do I have to worry about that? What's going on with shipping to Canada? All these really crazy things that the more you end up looking into them, the more time it takes and the more chance they are going to then change again on you. So uh, it just made a lot of sense logistically and, um, and, you know, personally as well, they're just great people to work with. I love talking with them and, uh, and they've been, you know, just really done a great job at letting me focus on the parts of this that I, that I should, which is, you know, essentially the book. Yeah. I found Zoop very interesting and it's been, I'm sure they've been around longer, but I feel like they popped up like the past year, maybe even <laughs> less of a time frame up to kind of notice them. And, uh, yeah, I've been hearing that a lot from the, the creators like yourself. Like they kind of take one of those, the big hurdles away, which is fulfillment and shipping mm-hmm. and all that. So was that the main reason for going with them was just you felt like this took such a headache off of me and I, I, I don't want to deal with this anymore. What else do they provide that maybe convince you to move away from Kickstarter and over to them? Oh, uh, well, it wasn't so much that they... Um you know, provide because I was actually using Kablam for fulfillment and shipping as, uh, in the first three, which, and I don't want to say anything, uh, negative about them. They've been great as well. 
Um, the, the great things about Zoop, I would say essentially are there for their comics people, which I think is a huge plus over Kickstarter. Um, there were times where backers would ask me questions on one through three about how something was going to work basically on Kickstarter's end, like an answer that I couldn't give them. I would email Kickstarter support team after going through a million chat bots and I would never hear back. Uh, because comics are not their fundamental, their primary reason for existing. The gaming stuff is so much bigger. There's just bigger stuff out there. We're not the biggest uh, part of their business. So I didn't really feel like I, I got as much attention there as I wanted from them when I was you know, trying to get an issue solved for a backer. Uh, in addition to that, they have great connections within the comic world and can kind of, they had suggestions about what to offer with this campaign that were great that I would not have thought of, but they've done this a bunch of times before because they, and they, they're comics people. They uh, were actually offering some original art prints. I, I do all my stuff digitally, but they were suggesting we kind of offer a one-time only print of a page that we would send with a certificate of authenticity. And my thought was like, do people want that? They said, oh yeah, people go and get that all the time. So I would never have thought to, to go down that road had they not suggested it, but those have done pretty well. Um, and so that's, that's mainly it. And the fact that they kind of, they handled a lot of the campaign planning, the timing, the, uh, what's this going to cost? What's shipping going to cost? They have fantastic relationships with, uh, I think they, I'm, I'm not sure the exact shipping plan. I, I have it in my head, but I don't want to say it in case I'm wrong. The, the fulfillment partners they have, and they, they have great relationships with printers as well. So the cost could be a lot lower per print on top of that. So that's, um, those are the main things. They have great relationships with vendors, they're comics people, uh, and they have great insight into specifically how these campaigns work and what comic readers, uh, you know, will support and want to see in a crowdfunding campaign. Yeah. I like their outreach too, because they're yeah. so focused on comics. They're actually reaching out to and doing a good job advertising the different books that they're doing uh -huh. and actually giving them spotlight. I also kind of like with them, I, I don't know if this is done on purpose. I got to assume it is, but, they don't take on a lot so they can, they almost act like a publisher in sorts where they can take mm -hmm. on like four or five and then really focus in on them and give yeah. them the spotlight they deserve, which is really cool. Yeah. It just, it feels more like a comics experience somehow. And it, you compared them to a publisher, which I, I think I see what you're saying there. Cause it does, it, it feels just more, it's not like this sort of open, everything's on here. You sort through it sort of a thing, which Kickstarter kind of is. Uh, and I don't want to say bad things about Kickstarter, but you know, that it's just a different experience where this is just our little comics pond, uh, when you come to Zoop. And I think that that's also great. Like I said, because they, they've run comics campaign and they'll sit down and say, Hey, this works well in a comics campaign. We did this on this one. It worked out well, uh, which is just something you're not going to get from Kickstarter or a lot of the other, I don't know if crowdfunder does that or not, but. Um, I don't imagine you get that from Indiegogo, uh, and I don't think you get that from Kickstarter. Yeah, definitely. So, like we said on the top, you're you're doing issue four, and then the full trade, uh, which is going to be a hardcover. Yeah. So for issue four, um, how I mean, how was it just finishing up this book for you? Like, I mean, I know when we first when I first talked to you, you talked about the the love that went into the issue and how this was kind of partially like mostly a dream project for you. How does it feel now to be quote unquote done with it? Or, or at least at the end of this first story arc, uh, it feels weird. Uh, it feels weird just to be done with, all right, I got to get this page done. I got to get, I want to send this out and I need to make some fixes to a few things from the version that you've read. Mm -hmm. But, um, but fundamentally it was done. Uh, I think last Saturday morning. So, that has felt strange just to be, I mean, I have things to do. I like, like I said, changes, I need to be um, adding, putting together the extras that are going to heart into the hardcover edition. And that's going to have a ton of sketches, commentary, um, things that went into the story. Uh, and that's kind of what differentiates it from the, uh, from the red five trade that's going to come out once the series is completed in comic shops. Uh, that's going to be just a pretty much a standard trade that, that, you know, you expect to see um, and we wanted the hardcover to not step on the toes of that. It'd be a little different. So it's kind of, if you are a big Scarlet Twilight fan, if you really liked it and you want to see a lot more artwork and things that went into the story, that's what you, you'll get that in the hardcover because there's going to be tons and tons of extras, uh, in addition to it being, you know, a kind of premium hardcover product, uh, product. 
That's great. I'm looking forward to the hardcover more than anything. I mean, it just the the pictures you have on here look really fantastic. I, I like the the binding of it and everything. It, it really pops off the shelf, so I'm excited to get my hands on that. Yeah, cool. Um, so let's talk a little bit about issue four, and I'll I'll try to we're gonna do our best to stay away from any kind of spoilers. So um, I, there we'll is try our one, best, but I don't get too upset about particular spoilers. So you know, we'll, I'm really pumped to talk about issue four with people. You're one of the first people to have read it, so uh, interested to hear what people think. I guess. <laughs> So I really liked a, a lot of it. I, I, I love I love the book. I but there's certain things throughout it. One of them being, so the main character we have here, Captain Lanza, is a, a 1930s character mm-hmm. who's then kind of thrust in the future, and he has that 1930s feel to it. And we we learn a little bit about his backstory, which was really cool to see. It, it added almost another twist on top of the issue one twist of where he came from that I really liked. And it added a different dynamic to this kind of speech you give on, on the, the issue about the, what's the best way to put it? Not, not what America is, but what the hope of America is. Yeah. Yeah. That scene was one of the best Captain America as scenes I've seen in <laughs> comics. Like I love that's to me always what Captain America is. He's the dream. He's the dream incarnate of what America should be. Mm-hmm. And I love that sequence. I love I mean, as much as you can talk about it, like what went into that that moment for you in the book? Well, I think it it sounds like it um you you really hit the nail on the head. This is I think from the end of issue 3 where he kind of lays it all out like here's where I'm from, here's why I do what I do. Uh, when they're at that uh, that sort of old campground place, yeah, that's uh, it, it, I did want that to be a Captain America speech um, in a lot of ways. It, like I thought, of, oh, I had that issue of Civil War in mind. Actually, I think it was a Civil War spinoff uh, that Ron Garney drew, and I think uh, Michael Straczynski, J. Michael Straczynski wrote, where Captain America gives that like twenty panel speech to Spider Man, which is a lot of words to have on a page, but it was a really good speech. Uh, and I think has been memorable because of that. That was definitely the inspiration for that particular page in a lot of ways. The other thing that went into that is when I was reading a lot of these old golden age comics, uh, kind of as research, uh, it was really surprising how much everybody remembers, you know, Batman selling war bonds on the covers and things like that, or handing the soldier, the gun, and everything like that. But uh, it's surprising even more. So how much politics were in those books you have people having like really sort of um, not complicated, but sort of like the level of discourse you'd see in like a grade school textbook conversations about, you know, fascism or, or democracy and this and that in, in these old stories, which and, and I kept seeing it over and over and over again. So I did think that there was a good opportunity to play off of that in a way that was surprising, giving his origins. And as far as how it tied together in terms of his motivations, I always have said, I think it makes like comic book sense for him to say, well, I was a king back in the day and here were the good things and here were the bad things. And when I ran into this new country and this new way of doing things, uh, I bought in, I was into it. This was a good thing and I fought to defend it. And I hope it's a little bit of a surprise because up until that moment in the story, uh, I had hoped that you were learning a little bit as you learned a little bit more about him. And I kind of trickled that out throughout issues two and three. Uh, I was hoping that you'd kind of be like, well, maybe he was just doing this because he had this other thing he was trying to conceal. Maybe this whole facade of being a crime fighter was not completely on the up and up or he had ulterior motives. And I, I wanted that that moment in issue three where he lays it all out was actually one of the big moments of the story where and I, when I sat down and sort of broke the whole thing down, that, that was almost the climax for me. He's like, no, man, I was, I'm, I'm down with this. I'm a hero. I, I believe in these things. I'm not just pretending. And uh, I, I wanted to write a character like that. Cause I think a lot of times we, there's so much deconstruction lately in comics uh, ever since the eighties that I, I wanted to have a character that was what he said he was. Uh, but I also wanted to take time to make that uh, at least in the plot sense plausible. So it, I, I hope that would give it more impact that it, that it does make a little bit of sense, uh, ideally. Yeah, it's one of those things in the the conversation where I think people are talking past each other a lot. And 
And this is what I mean by that is, like you said, politics have always been there in comics and in most media. And I think what we're seeing, I think people have more of a spotlight because this was definitely happened back in the day too. But I think what people react to is when the politics in something isn't treated properly mm-hmm. or treated like ham-fisted as opposed yeah. to nuanced and within the bounds. Cause I always, like you talked about some of the golden age books. I always go back to when people got mad about uh, politics and Captain America. I was like, this is the dude that there's issues of him talking about why it was anti-American to fight the drug war. Yeah. Like this is nothing new for this character. It's just, knowing who Steve is and using that character as a voice for his, who, what his politics would be and then churning your message in there with it, doing it smart mm-hmm. is how I always put it. And that's what I took away from that scene is it's, I could tell that you spent a lot of time in that scene and that wasn't oh, yeah. written down one, um, one afternoon and then thrown <laughs> no. away. Like you went <laughs> through that a God. few times and we're like, we need to get this speech, right? Yeah. And well, it, really it was hard to cut it down, honestly. Um, because there was just a lot to be, there's a lot to cover there. Um, and the flashback helped because I could dress that up with some good visuals. And also, um, in addition to being a vampire, there's a further twist to that. And that's kind of why I don't mind giving away the initial twist on his character. He's not just any old vampire. Uh, he's one of the big ones. And I, I was able to kind of round off some of the, because that, that particular historical figure was probably a pretty nasty character. Uh, and I kind of said, well, he's that guy, but he, it wasn't exactly like it actually was in real life. It were monsters and it wasn't that bad, uh, sort of a thing in terms of his, his character. So there was the flashback, uh, the flashback, I'm sorry, helped, but the, um, yeah, that speech did, uh, did take a long time to write and to, to condense as well. I think the condensing was the, was the hardest part. Yeah. And as, as I said, as a reader, it, it shows and it shows that there was care put into it. And that's, that's what I want personally in my, in all of my comics, but especially when you try to broach these subjects, like treat it with the care it deserves. And I, I, I really think you did that well. There's Thanks. also a moment inside of there where he talks about being back in the thirties that I love. Cause he talks about the bloodlust. He's like, yeah. well, I used to go to this diner. I'm going to get it wrong, but I, he, I went to this diner and there was this like egg salad sandwich or something along those lines. <laughs> yeah. And it had like the right protein in it. And it kind of, it, it threw me back to like early Venom when they're like, we need to make Venom a good guy. So he eats, what was it? Peanut butter. Oh, I don't think I've read that, but yeah, I'm, but I'm totally doing the same cheat that they were yeah. doing here. Where I have to, I have to kind of round the edges off of this sort of thing in a way that makes it a little, a little more digestible for him to be a hero. Yes. Yeah. I'm definitely doing the same thing. They were that a great moment. I, that really, that was so much fun. There was a show called The Alienist that might still be on. I think it was on TNT. And there's a kid there. It takes place in, I think, the 18, maybe the early 1900s or the late 1800s. And they have, it's a great period show. It takes place in New York City and it's like a murder mystery. And they have a lot of good historical references in there. And one character's like, oh, I'm going to go get an egg cream. And I thought, that sounds so, I'm sure I've heard of it before. I read about it in a novel I had to read for school. But I was like, that's a great uh, sort of period detail. And I thought I'm going to, I jotted that down and I wanted to throw that in in some way. And so in issues one and two, I, I think in the thank you page for my, the Kickstarter versions, uh, I think I put promotional consideration provided by Second Avenue Egg Cream. Uh, and that pays off in issue four, well, in issue three when he mentions it. Uh, and then issue four, he finds out what has become of his, uh, his favorite diner uh, in the future. But uh, yeah, that, that had been like playing out throughout the series. And it kind of came from just hearing that old phrase. And thinking like, what is that weird old drink? I want to throw that into my book because it just gives you that. This is not something you hear every day, and it really puts you in the the where the where the characters come from in terms of their time period and their roots. Yeah, it's a fun little comic book moment too. It's I hope it's, so. <laughs> it's one of those things that like if they did it in the the movie version, or you know, if you know, assuming we get a movie version one day, if they did it in the movie version, you'd be like, that's weird. But as a comic fan, I'm like, that's it's so comic books, and I love it. Mm-hmm. I love those quirky little things that we do in our medium. It's just, it's what yeah. makes it. It's part of what well, makes it special. Well, and that's that's one of the things that was great about this series is there were so many things that, um, I, the thing that really got me thinking in lines in this line about 
just taking advantage of the comic language was when Stephen King was rewriting his uh, gunslinger novels in the Marvel comics in graphic novels. And then he wrote like he, he made, he sat down and did the work and made it a comic and he had like thought bubbles and stuff. And the editors say, Oh, you know, we don't really do that anymore. He's like, why would you throw away thought bubbles? Those are great. Where else can you do those? But in comics, that's so stupid. <laughs> and I agree. Um, in doing research for this, uh, there's great things that those old, those old comics would do that we don't really, that did not continue to be used and become kind of your standard comic book thing, at least as far as modern comics are concerned, they would uh, cut through scenes really quickly because they wanted to get the story uh, moving as quickly as possible. So sometimes you'd see Batman, the, the an analogy I've always heard, the illustration that I've always described is you'd see Batman go into a office and instead of him like looking around, he looks under the desk, he looks under the chair. He always oh, finally finds the clue in a safe. They just say, they have a text panel that says Batman looked around for a few minutes and then he found the thing. And I'm like, well, that's great. You should do that. Nobody wants to see three panels of Batman, like doing this and doing that and doing this. Um, there were a lot of good opportunities when you look at these old comics to see storytelling tricks they used uh, and in ways that were great. I thought, well, that's fantastic. I'm going to use that. That moves me along in the story so much faster and lets me kind of fast forward through the boring parts in a way that makes sense and is true to the period. So there was a lot of opportunities there. And the, uh, the egg cream story is one of them. Cause I could put that kind of almost like one of the advertisements you'd see in a comic. And then it actually enters the story in issue four. Um, so there's, there's a lot of opportunities to do things like that in comics. And I'm always, I'm a comics person. I, I love movies. You know, video games are great when I, I used to play them. I don't have time anymore. Uh, I love all those other mediums, but we're comics people and, and I'm always looking for ways to be like, I want to, if I'm going to do a comic book, I want to do the most comic booky comic I can do. I want to take advantage of every tool that we have in comics. Cause otherwise, you know, why shouldn't it just be a bunch of storyboards? Yeah. And you, and you do that. I think I said this when we talked last time, but you do that well with not only panel layout, but like using your splash pages properly and, and making them feel Obviously, I read it digitally. I think when when I get the physical splash pages, especially on physical, I just think pop better. Yeah, they but do. I, I like the way they're laid out in in terms of because I, I was kind of counting the pages as I was going along. I'm like, okay, that's where I could tell that you were like, okay, this is where the guy they're going to flip the page, and that's when the splash is going to hit. Mm-hmm. And I, I love uh, that as a part of it too because it's such an important thing for creators to know where they're placing things in the book as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's the, the approach to the splashes was really fun. Cause one of the things you see in those old comics is you, you generally would have a nine panel grid. Sometimes you'd have even more than that. And what I would try to do is take paint. I, if I had three pages and maybe over that 27 panels, uh, I would cram a lot of those panels into one or two of the pages. So I'd have like 10 panel pages uh, at points and then go to a page with, you know, a big splash and then one small panel. I, I mean, I want to distribute that out in a way that makes sense given the, the period I'm kind of drawing upon, which, you know, the old Golden Age comics where you would see ton of pan- a ton of panels on the page and then just do as much contrast as possible and then like go from something that's really old fashioned. And generally when I'd have the uh, pages with a lot of panels, I would also kind of make them as uh, undynamic at times as I could right before I go to a page that's a little more Neil Adams or something like that, where you get forced shortening and you get a big image, you got things coming at the viewer. So I kind of would be like, this is sort of a Windsor McKay layout. And I'd go to the splash that would be a little more Neil Adams or Brian Hitch. Definitely. And do you, do you also do all of your own coloring for the book? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Okay. This yeah, is colors, one letters, really, everything. This is one I really, I, I hope you agree. I don't want to spoil this, but there's a character that pops up near the end of the book mm-hmm. and the coloring you do on it. And I, I kind of went back to the first issue because I was trying to see if it was, if you did it in the first issue as well with the, a different character. And it really did pop the way it was colored almost like that character compared to everybody else where everybody else has this very, I don't want to say cartoony, but it's almost a flat coloring style. Yeah. And this one almost pops out as 3D. It's like other dimensional almost. 
Well, he I is, really, in fact, other dimensional, so it, <laughs> that's <yeah>. the idea. <laughs> and I really loved the way it, it contrasted with everybody else on the page and popped out. So I, I, if, as much as you can, can you go into what went into that? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, no, this is cool to talk about. The, um, so the character you're talking about is, in fact, other dimensional. And the idea behind him is, is that he does not belong here. He doesn't look right. In fact, if you notice, the other characters can see his word balloons uh, when he talks. Like he's he's not Deadpool. He's not talking to the viewer, but he does not exist in the same reality that the other characters do. And in fact, I color them a lot flatter when he's around, uh, just to give it a little contrast. As far as creating him, I tried to make him look even more CG than he is. He is kind of computer generated. Um, and then if you look at his costume details or his uniform or his, I guess, equipment might be the best way to describe it. The way I approached it was kind of, I wanted to do something like those collages Kirby would do in fantastic four, where it would suddenly be like Xeroxes. Um, and then you'd have an inset of Reed Richards of the thing in it, but everything would be, um, you know, grayscale photographs with, uh, with Zipatone and things like that. It would be a completely different reality. So that character is. Uh, computer generated as far as his figure is concerned and as far as his uh, accoutrements and his uh, his kind of suit or equipment uh, those are all um, like images I've taken and manipulated and I tried to make them look really flat I thought they would look a lot more disjointed than they actually do they they work in a lot of ways that I was surprised to see because I wanted him to look very uh, if he were a character in a movie like the things he would do when he would turn all his things would not turn with him. He wouldn't exactly exist in the right perspective. Um, he's here, but he's not really here, uh, in, in our, you know, I guess three dimensional reality is, is the best way to describe it. So I, I, I kind of did him in a completely different way. Um, and then I used a lot of effects to make him, you know, like the, um, the sort of screen printing effect on him and sort of, we have a little bit of a channel offset there where his, uh, his red tones and his green tones are a little bit, you know, 10 pixels apart in most of the panels. So that was the idea there is that he was supposed to look very different. Um, the characters don't react to him in the same way that they do to each other. Um, he breaks a lot of the rules of the, the sort of reality of the panel to panel storytelling exists for everybody else. So that's, um, and that's something you'll see. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to handle it in the sequel because he'll be back, um, which I think he, he kind of lets you know he will at the end of the story. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how I want to approach it in that one because I'm going to do this next story a little bit differently and try to make it a little bit more faithful uh, to those old 1940s comics than this one was. Yeah, and and it works because I almost I was trying to describe it to somebody. It the character almost doesn't fit while at the same time feeling like he belongs. Mm-hmm. And I I. I I'm positive as a reader that that's what you were going for. Like he's not yeah. of this world, so he doesn't fit in with what the the aesthetic of the world is. But he is existing in it. Is kind of yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, he really tenuously exists uh, yeah. in the world. He's kind of. I almost see him as like he's when Reed Richards goes into the negative zone or or something like that. It's it's kind of that idea. He's. He's here, but he's, it's difficult for him to be here. He needs things from our world, but he can't really like sit down and, you know, sit in a chair in our world. He's, it's a weird relationship that, uh, that I'll get a lot more into in the sequel, uh, which is going to be a a kind of a, uh, it's going to be a little longer. It's going to be, um, the structure of it's going to be a little different. I'm kind of approaching it as if it was crisis on infinite earths, but it was done in 1940. So it's going to be different universes, different characters. I'm going to have some characters show up that I think will really surprise people um, and uh, and kind of take the story in that direction. And I'm going to try and be a lot more faithful, like I said, to the older comics because what I'm going to be doing this one is a little bit more straightforward uh, in that I, I compare We Are Scarlet Twilight to Rocky, the first Rocky movie, where the resolution of that movie is not necessarily is he going to win the fight, but it's about revealing his character. Can he really do this? Is he a bum or can he get up there and fight with Apollo Creed? Uh, is Adrian going to be a wallflower? Is she going to go there and root for him? You know, like you're the, the, the climaxes are not, does he win the fight? It's does he become who he's supposed to be? 
And I think that's kind of the, the types of questions I was answering with We Are Scarlet Twilight, although there are obviously plot, you know, you know, victories and, and losses uh, in the story. The next story, I can't really do that over again because we have those answers about those characters, but I can kind of take it in a little bit more of a Game of Thrones direction in that the suspense will come with like, who's going to make it out of this? Who's, you know, who, how are they going to get through these problems uh, and what's going to happen to these people? So that's kind of the, the direction I'm taking it. So you kind of answered a question I was going to get to a little bit later, but since we're on it, it's probably a good time to talk about it, which is sequel. Every, I know every creator loves talking about the sequel when they're trying to get the first one done, but <laughs> we do. <laughs> uh, do you see the next story arc is like, if you were, if, if you're doing this tomorrow, do you see it as issue five or do you see it as we are Scarlet Twilight season two, number one? Probably the latter. Um, it's more of a, uh, like I said, the tone's going to be very different. And, and I don't think that there would be a satisfying reader experience, just kind of find ways to repeat what I did in Scarlet Twilight one. It, it's like I said, it's about kind of really revealing that character. And he, you know, he gives you that captain America speech and then you figure out how he does actually win this fight, if he does, for people who haven't read it. Uh, those are the big, I think, uh, sources of suspense for the first story. I don't think that's going to be satisfying to just do over, to kind of remix into another story that, that kind of covers the same basis. Um, so I think it definitely is more of a season two. Yeah, I would actually compare it to something that changes mediums in the way that say Star Trek was a TV show for a while and they came back with a series of motion pictures. It's a slightly different thing that is a continuation of the same characters, but the medium is obviously it's the same medium. It's a comic book, uh, but the structure is very different. The, um, the sense of how much is a serial, a serialization type of a story is different. The, the types of plot points we focus on are different. So I would almost compare it to Star Trek, the, the series to Star Trek, the motion picture through Star Trek six. It's like, we're going to, we're, we're continuing the story, but we're doing it under a very different structure. Interesting. So we have, we have that to look forward to everybody, but right now <laughs> what we have to look forward to yeah. is we are Scarlet Twilight issue four and the hardcover trade paperback on Zoop. But not only that, you also uh, penned a deal with red five, to publish the at least the first arc, yeah, and uh, that is in previews right now. So, I guess my first question is why Red Five, and then to kind of continue with that, I mean, how has been going through the publishing line been for the series as well? Oh well, they've been great. Um, working with Red Five was actually when I was pitching my series August to a lot of publishers. I I sent it to them. And uh, didn't hear back from them on that one, but uh, ended up going with a different publisher that didn't work out uh, as things progressed during the pandemic. Um, in the meantime, I had done Scarlet Twilight on Kickstarter, thinking that if you've read the book, you know it's it's very golden age, and you almost have to know a lot about those old comics to get... I mean, I think my mom could read it and understand the story, but I don't think she'd understand a lot of the references or why the characters maybe speak the way that they do or why uh, what, the pacing of it or things like that. You kind of have to be a comic fan to get those things. Even if you're not into those old comics, you've probably seen some of them and you're like, Oh yeah, I, this is like the old Dick Tracy comics, the old justice society comics. I, I get that uh, sort of thing. So I thought, well, it's kind of niche. I'll put it in Kickstarter and see what happens. It did pretty well. And red five actually contacted me about um, doing a version for shops. And I said, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. Um, I've liked the books they put out before um, their team. I've been working with Josh Storns, Josh Starnes and Scott Chitwood. Uh, and they've both been fantastic to work with. So that was pretty much as simple as it was. Excuse me. Yeah. And so everybody, I mean, that's how in previews right now. So you can make sure to check mm -hmm. that out. And I guess my last thing, it, you have said a few times, like the golden age inspiration and, I do agree. It's with any new medium to get a new person in is always something. But for people that are into comics, the thing that came to mind as you were discussing it as that golden age inspiration is something I see in the video game world a lot, which is it almost feels like a remake of a classic golden age book, but not the re not a one for one remake of 
what the book actually is, but more of a one-to-one remake of what your memory of that book actually mm-hmm. is. And I think that's why it hit with so many people is it didn't, some of those golden age books can be rough. I mean, I, I love yeah. comics. I love those old <laughs> comics, but they can be rough at times. That's why I don't really hand somebody the flash from 1960 something. I, mm-hmm. if somebody wants to get in the comics, I probably hand them the dark Knight or yeah. kingdom come or, you know, something like that. And I think that's something you pull off really well here is it, it does have a lot of inspiration, but it, it doesn't it doesn't drag like a lot of those old books do. It, it feels like a remake. It feels like a, a, a refresh of the style. Yeah, that was the goal was to it was the goal in two ways. I wanted to I think this ended up being a lot the first Scarlet Twilight ended up being a lot more modern than when I set out to do, do this. I planned on it being it was and that served the story. I don't regret that in any sense uh, because I want. I want to structure it using what I can from those old comics to get the most impact in the story I'm doing at the time. And I think that what we are Scarlet Twilight is represents that this is taking, you know, I sort of have the golden age stuff. I have the expectations of modern comics and modern comics readers. And I guess my job is to kind of mix those spices together into the best thing that particular dish can be. Um, I did initially think it was going to be a little more retro than it ended up being. And that's one of the things I kind of want to go back to with the sequel is uh, initially I had a few ideas for a sequel that I didn't think were good enough. And then as a few more things piled on there, I thought that's probably enough. Um, but I think the thing that made me really excited about going back to it in the future is there's a lot more on the table. I think that I didn't use from those old comics that could really be applied here and be fun. Um, they have so many storytelling because they were just creating this art form. There were, not a lot of rules. There were not a lot of expectations aside from the ones they, you know, their editors had. So you had a lot of experimentation and a lot of things that worked, even though if you sit down and read those comics, uh, the Batman ones are okay. Superman ones are so, so justice society is hard to read. Um, A lot of the America's best, like black terror, those guys are really bland. Um, Captain Marvel is actually pretty good. But there's, it varies, but they're not that exciting to go back and read. Captain Marvel is probably the best of those old ones, the old Fawcett ones. But if you really look back at those, it's like you want, there is something that's so cool, you kind of keep looking at them. And that's kind of what kept me, me coming back to the idea of doing this. And if I compare it to the, if you've ever seen the movie Tron from the oh, yeah. 80s. Yeah, so Tron's a cool idea and it looks cool. And I can still watch it and appreciate it for what it is. But it is a tough watch. It's really slow. It's really not quite what you want it to be. And yet you see why they came back to it. Because like there was something really cool about it, even though that movie is like really, really tough to get through. There's there's something about it that there's like, yeah, I, I want that, but I want it to work. And that's kind of what I've been experimenting with with this character and with this plot. Um, is I'm trying to take a lot of things I see in there, the the atmosphere, the color the the attitudes and then also really the directness of the storytelling and to try and do something that works now um and and, but doesn't give you that the the drag i guess you get from you know there's really racist elements in those old comics they can be slow at times uh the art's not terribly dynamic the the art's also pretty uneven depending on uh the artist and you know how much time they had to do it so i kind of wanted to sift through it and take out the bad stuff and, and really highlight the good stuff. Cause there is some good stuff there that I don't think I've seen a lot of in modern comics uh, that, you know, I think there's an appetite to see certainly as a reader, I want to see more of that stuff. So um, if you look at like Matt Wagner, he did a few mini series for DC where he revisited a couple of golden age Batman stories. Those are really cool. Um, I, I like to see stuff like that. And so that's the idea is just, I want to go back and mine, uh, some of that atmosphere and that that, that approach uh, into a more modern storytelling package. Yeah, uh, quick aside, uh, Marvel's doing, I think it's Paul Levitt's writing it, is oh. doing a Avengers book that takes place back in the, I want to say issue 11? It's Oh, I know that. Is uh, Alan Davis drawing it? Yes, yes, yes. War Across yeah. Time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a blast. I love going back to it. I'll tell you what, though, that dynamic between Giant Man and Wasp back in the day 
mm-hmm. is rough. I forgot like <laughs> their dynamic was a little out there uh, for somebody in 2023. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, and I think they, they hit on something there because I have seen a few panels of that. Any, as far as at least the comic versions are concerned, any, I mean, I, I never liked Ant-Man because coming up when I did, and you, you, I think you're a little younger than me. Like, I just knew Ant-Man as the guy that hit the wasp. Like that's all he was. Whereas my older, some of my older colleagues I work with, they're like, oh yeah, Ant-Man's cool. And they didn't even know that happened. And like, to me, that's all he was. And so I never really liked him. And I also think Yellow Jacket is stupid and and all that, but I've never liked that inner, oh, sorry. (laughs) I was going to say my first Ant-Man was the irredeemable Ant-Man. So it wasn't even Scott or Scott. It wasn't even, uh, I'm zoning right now. Hank. It wasn't even Hank. That was my first Ant-Man. Like it was the yeah. third or fourth Ant Man that was my first Ant Man, so yeah, I have a different perspective on him. Yeah, you know, I never appreciated the concept because I'm not that into. I mean, I don't particularly like the Atom either, but that's all I knew about that guy. I was like, oh, that's the guy that hit the Wasp. That's kind of icky. I don't really want to get that in my comic book reading experience. But if you look at, and this is something I was really playing with with the reveal on who Captain Lancet really was, is I know that. I think the expectation when I revealed some of the things about him in the first issue about being a vampire, I think the expectation is from modern storytelling. Oh, well he's doing, he's like Dexter. He's doing this to be able to be a vampire, but kind of cover it up. Uh, And I think that when you look at the dynamic, if you're going to revisit the wasp and Ant-Man before any of the dark stuff happened, you kind of, you know, that a modern reader is thinking of that, even if you're going to show them in sunnier times. And I think that dynamic of, of uh, I know that people probably expect this to go this way or even to be hinted at or addressed in some way um, is something I was very aware of when writing Captain Lancet's dialogue and his actions is I I know that people probably think he's going to be a little bit of an anti-hero, a little bit tarnished. And and I wanted to leave room for that because I knew there was probably an expectation of a bit of a deconstructionist approach to him. Um, and it sounds like that's, I think anytime where you've seen a retro approach to the Avengers, they've always had a nod in there that there was something not right about their dynamic because we expect that later on to, you know, we know that happens five years from then. Yeah. It's, it's not to get too much into it cause we're here to promote your book, but it's, it's not even like that as much as I forget how much. Cause I've read some old Avengers um, Marvel's more my bag. So I usually, a lot mm-hmm. of my older, Marvel or reading is Marvel. And I forget like how much of a horn dog Janet was. <laughs> oh yeah. No, she was always like fawning over Thor and stuff like that. And you're like, it's weird. It's weird to see that. And it's so much weirder to see it knowing what the character, you know, what, where it yeah. went. And, and like I said, my impression was just how that unfolded that, you know, um, but it is weird to see um, how they handle that. And I remember, I think I was reading the George Perez and uh, might've been Jeff Johns was writing it, the sort of post heroes reborn Avengers. And they were all sitting around the pool and, and Jan was just flirting with everybody and talking about like, Oh, I've been with Hawkeye and I've been with this person. And I, like, and I'm like, this is weird, but I guess it was kind of there in the old comics. They just weren't being as explicit about it, but I can't say it wasn't like hinted at either. Yeah. That run, that run was something else i i actually didn't even i didn't know that run was a thing until later on and i was like wait jeff johns wrote for marvel and then it's yeah. one of those things like jason aaron's done stuff at dc and this per, you know guys have done across medium all the time and but you think of them as one company all the time and mm-hmm. weird. so the book we are scarlet twilight uh benjamin before we hop off and uh move on with our night. Where could I send people to follow you? Do you want them to go to Twitter or is there somewhere else that you uh, post on social media? Well, mainly, uh, I mean, obviously the book is at Zoop right now, but um, as far as future stuff, uh, follow me on Twitter uh, and follow me on my YouTube channel. And uh, I post a lot in each place. uh, And I kind of, on Twitter, I'm mostly posting artwork and, you know, going into a little bit of story things and things that have influenced me. I'll, I'll post like, some artwork from the, from the comic and maybe a few other panels of, of classic artwork from other artists that like, Hey, this is kind of what made me think to do this. Uh, 
which in addition to just giving a nod to those creators is a cool and you know a little bit of education it's also cool just to see nice cool high-res pictures of that old stuff uh, on my youtube channel i go into commentary on my existing books um, i show off artwork a little bit of process um, and do a lot of stuff and also where i go into a lot of my influences um, and kind of pick apart what makes those artists great in my opinion and, and also how they've influenced my work so uh, the YouTube channel and the Twitter account are the best places to find me. And to everyone out there watching, listening, as always, I will have those links in the show notes down below. You should all check out We Are Scarlet Twilight on Zoop. If you're not a, a crowdfunding person, which I know a few of you are, I will also have the link to the uh, previews catalog so that you can show it to your local comic shop or use the poll box app to put it on your poll list. And I highly, highly recommend that you do. Um, I'm not, I don't say it often, but this is one of my favorite, if not my favorite book in crowdfunding right now. It is a phenomenal book. So Benjamin, thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with me. And uh, I look forward to the next time we can chat and the next time we see Captain Lanzett in the page. Absolutely. Thanks for having me.